Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to episode 13 of the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. And this is a first, I'm really excited. Probably one of the best keynote speakers I've ever seen who's uh, spoken at some of our events now. I'll keep paying him loads of money to come along. He must <laughs> love you so me. much. Thank <laughs> you so much, Rob. <laughs> must love me as a client. BJ Cunningham is uh, our special guest. So this is the first ever guest uh, podcast on the Disruptive Entrepreneur. Really excited. And uh, BJ, what would you like to talk about? Well, I, I always enjoy talking about myself, Rob, if, if you don't mind. I know this is the Rob show, but and also perfect episode 13, very good number. So what's your speciality? What's your thing? I'm an entrepreneur, I'm, but I look at business through the lens of brand. So fundamentally, I focus on brand and branding. Okay, so I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs about brand and some entrepreneurs think it's a logo and some swag with some labels on it then some entrepreneurs think it's a marketing machine and lead generation. You're a brand expert and we'll get your story in a minute, but what would you say is brand, if you could define it? A brand is a promise. And in fact, a lot of people do think a brand is a logo or a brand is a name. Um, the name and the logo are just a vehicle for communicating that promise consistently into the mind of a customer. So brands are promises and people are interested in ideas. They are loyal to promises. In my view, not products and price points. Products and price points are important, but anyone can copy a product and anyone can better a price point. And bettering a price point is called discounting. And in my worldview, discounting is little more than pissing your pants. You know, it's warm for a bit and then, <laughs> then it gets very cold. So, so trying to maintain a consistent market position through discounting is very difficult unless you're a volume player. The way to differentiate in today's crowded market is through clarity of message, clarity of promise. So a brand is a promise. It's certainly not a logo. In fact, you can pay hundreds of thousands of pounds to very specialist organisations who will develop you beautiful logos. But all they are is really expensive bits of artwork until such time as that logo becomes synonymous with the promise that you're seeking to make. So ultimately, the the really scarce resource in today's market is the mind of the customer. And entering the mind of the customer means getting through the real bottleneck in the market, which is the eyes and the ears. So getting behind the eyes and between the ears with a promise that you are seeking to own in the mind of the customer, in my view, is called business. And the reason it's important in terms of business is because with that promise, you can sell consistently the same product for more money. So the, in other words, for more margin. And why? Because trust is a valuable commodity. And if you're making a promise and that promise becomes trustworthy and synonymous with a product in a particular sector, then by definition, you can charge more for it and you're differentiating yourself in the market. Okay. Thanks, uh, BJ. So is it important for your brand, your promise to be unique, contrarian, niche, you know, words that are maybe banded around when we talk about brand? Can you explore that a little bit? Yeah, um, I think it is important to be unique, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean contrary. It doesn't necessarily mean um, 
It could be anything as long as it's unique and it's the promise you choose to give. So fundamentally, I believe brands are manifestations of the organisation that are making them. In other words, the promise giver is as important as the promise itself. And uh, simply put, if you're not credible as an individual and you make a promise, that promise isn't going to be believed. And a brand that isn't believed is not a brand. It's just a really expensive bit of artwork. So having a unique position that you're seeking to own in the mind of the customer is branding, but it's conscious. So branding is a process of consciously evolving in the mind of the customer. It's becoming who you choose to be in the mind of the customer. And it involves, it's a process. Um, in fact, the process I adopt, I, I, I developed, but it wasn't my idea. It comes from Dharma. It's 5,000 years old. It's the principle of right thought, right word, right action. So really simply put, it's this. Know what it is you are trying to say. Say it clearly. Then do what you said you were going to do when you said you were going to do it. Now, if you can live your life, if you can run your brand on those three simple principles, you will have a successful life. You will have a powerful brand. Mind you, those three simple principles are incredibly complicated. I mean, first of all, actually knowing what it is you're trying to say, then saying it clearly, and then doing what you said you were going to do when you said you were going to do it. That is differentiation enough. If you can do that, you win. Mm. And winning means holding that position in the mind of the customer, owning that promise. It's funny, you've just reminded me of something because just as we were walking in to do this, I was telling you about my upcoming special guest, Gerald Ratner. He's, he's great. I saw him speak. He's a fantastic speaker. And he's speaking for us next weekend here in a light like you coming straight off stage. Well, again, what he talks about is trust. Yeah. And uh, he's a fantastic example of a brand that was owned in the mind of the customer and the CEO turns up and completely destroys it. Mm. And actually, it's another great example of something else, which is it's important if you're seeking to own a position that you believe in the position you're seeking to <laughs> yeah. own. You yeah. know, because there's another really simple way of talking about that. It's, you know, you could use fancy marketing terms, but at the end of the day, it's called lying. Mm. And if you lie, then, you know, don't be surprised if people don't believe you, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, it's important to say what you mean and to mean what you say. Sure. So brand and brand marketing is about knowing what it is you're trying to say and then saying it and then doing what you said you were going to do when you said you were going to do it. Sure. So why do you think it's important as an entrepreneur to be focused on brand or have a brand awareness or even a brand strategy? I think it's important if you're seeking to build a value position. I mean, if you're not, if you're trading in a generic product, then, then actually I would argue it's absolutely not important mm. because what is marketing? What is branding? Branding sits at the root of marketing and marketing is sales foreplay. Okay, so it, it, it's of no value whatsoever unless it ends up in a sale. Mm -hmm. If you're dealing in a generic product, copper, then it, it doesn't much matter what the brand is. Remember, brands require investment. They're, they're like children. You have to feed them you have to put them through school you have to invest you have to clothe them you have to they cost money mm. it's important to to recognize that building a brand means investing money over time mm -hmm. and that means being really careful about what you invest in there is no point in just sticking up a name and a logo and if if actually it adds no clarity if it, if it doesn't do if you're dealing in a generic product 
deal in a generic product and mm. be proud of it. No problem at all. Scrap metal. Mm. You know, it's absolutely fine. Mm. But then what you can do is define you could brand your scrap metal practice. Mm -hmm. And that means why would you do that? Because then people have a propensity to give you their scrap metal because you're preferred. Mm. What does preferred mean? It means people believe in you. Yeah. So it's about belief. Belief is everything. Mm. And perception is everything. That's probably one of the key understandings and and uh, and rules that I've learned through my entrepreneurial career in terms of branding and marketing, which is perception is everything. Mm -hmm. The facts matter. Your price point matters. Your product matters. Your USPs matter. Your distribution matters. Your taxation matters. Your HR matters. All of these things matter. But what matters most is what your customer believes of you to be true. Mm -hmm. What your customer believes to be true is true. Here's the insight. Nobody controls their brand. Brands do not exist on boardroom tables. They do not exist in advertising agencies. They do not exist in PR companies. Brands exist in the minds of customers. So what the customer believes of you to be true is true until you change it. Brands are promises. BJ, how can insight into brand and a focus on brand and a promise make a, an enterprise or an entrepreneur more money, more profit? It means you can sell the self-same product for more money. I'll give you an example. If you have a pair of trainers and that pair of trainers is made in exactly the same factory in exactly the same way with the same materials as another pair of trainers, so you have two identical pairs of trainers, but one has a swoosh on it and the word N-I-K-E, and the other doesn't, you wouldn't pay 10 quid for the one without and you would pay 85 quid for the one with. Why? Because Nike own winning. The market position that they own in the mind of the customer is winning. Another great example would be Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson are not selling motorcycles. They are selling freedom. So when somebody tattoos Harley Davidson on their arm, they're not saying, I'm a motorcycle. They're saying, I believe in freedom. Harley Davidson own freedom. That means a 45-year-old accountant will go and spend 18 grand on a Harley he never rides. <laughs> Why? Because he wants a bit of freedom. Mm. So market positions are the key to understanding branding, mm -hmm. or at least branding underpins the market positions that are desired by the companies who invest in those brands. Mm. It's critical for, for an entrepreneur because what you're asking as an entrepreneur, normally entrepreneurs start from, the, or at least I do, start from the problem of problems. You know, problems are opportunities. Where, wherever there's a, a lie, wherever there's a hidden agenda, there's an opportunity, an opportunity for profit. So problems are opportunities if we are brave enough, if we're courageous enough to stare that demon in the eye and name it for what it truly is. And that inevitably means some form of pain. If we are brave enough to embrace that problem, there is inevitably some form of beautiful solution in that. Incidentally, this isn't my, my idea. The American Indians say the antidote is in the venom. Frank Lloyd Wright said a building should be off the hill, not on the hill. I say wherever there's a problem or a hidden agenda, a lie, mm. there is the opportunity for profit. So as an entrepreneur, I love those problemed opportunities Branding that opportunity allows me to differentiate my message in the market. It allows me to penetrate the mind of the customer with a story. Mm -hmm. Because as I said earlier, people are interested in ideas. They're loyal to promises, not products, not price points. Mm. Anyone can make a product. 
Anyone can copy a product. Anyone can better a price. But actually owning a story, now that's something that's of real value. People love stories. Mm. People, you know, we, we used to sit around campfires and, and watch the flames and a shaman would tell us the story. You know, that, that's what we want. Mm. I, I love a story. I want to hear the story. I don't just want to be told what it does. I'm mm. not interested in engineers. What I'm interested in is why, mm. not what. It's funny you say that about uh, brand and trust because uh, I think that trust is directly linked. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. to overhead cost and net profit margin. Because if someone doesn't trust you, you've got to hit them more times with your marketing and try and convince them more through time and cost. And if they trust you, that's reduced. Therefore, your overhead cost is reduced. Therefore, your net margin is up. No question. And in fact, you've touched on another point, which is marketing isn't just fluffy nonsense perpetrated by people who've got a design eye and recognise Pantone 3462. Okay, it's marketing permeates every aspect of business activity. Branding is a manifestation of that promise at every point. So from HQ, from the mind of the entrepreneur, through the board, through the organization, through the factory, through the wholesaler, through the retailer, through to the bedroom of the customer and through to return purchase, branding recognizes that all is one. It removes the illusion of separation. The illusion of separation says you are separate from your customer. Well, that is not true. You are your customer. And successful businesses, successful brands are people that recognize that the customer is a part of the organization, not apart from it. They treat their customer as they themselves would want to be treated. And there's only one way in which anyone would want to be treated, and that is in love. They love their customer. That's the secret of being an entrepreneur. Mm. Love Love, love your customer. Love, love your customer. It's all about love. <laughs> love your customer. Uh, the CD hasn't jumped there. <laughs> no, BJ did say that 12 just times. Just getting excited <laughs> about the love. You know. uh, do you think with all the social media and the increased speed at which fibre optic sends information through across, across the planet, this has maybe been exaggerated? You know, I mean, have you seen some of the big companies who maybe communicate with their customer a bit more? win and maybe some of them who treat them like a customer call center service lose? Absolutely. We're moving into a new age where the barriers for communication are breaking down Mm. and we can get close to our customer now. And uh, I think it's really important if you see, this is it. If you're seeking to own a market position, a promise, a brand, what is a brand? A brand is a promise. If you're seeking to make and keep a promise with your customer, 
You've got to continuously be in touch with that mm. customer. The closer you can be to the customer, the better. If you are concerned about being in touch with your customer, about being close to your customer, no problem. But then don't pretend you're branding because mm. you're not. Mm. You're lying. Mm. And then what will happen is the customer will catch you out. Mm. If you commoditize your customer, do not be surprised when your customer turns around and commoditizes you. Mm. You know, treat yeah. others as you would have them treat you. It's a core business. It's a core entrepreneurial mantra. Mm. I've definitely seen this change at one of my companies, Progressive. We have a, a private Facebook group community of our property investors and we have like 10,000 plus. When you listen to this, it might even be bigger. And it's funny because someone can go on there and market our competitors. So I went to a competitor's event. They can go on there and say, I went to an event last weekend and the food was shit. And, they had, and a lot of them don't even remember that they're in our living room, if you like, you know, metaphorically speaking. And uh, when that first happened, I was like, whoa, this is weird. Don't you know there are rules? Don't you know this is our, you know, house that you're in and you're defecating on the rug or whatever else? But I think as I've more embraced that, uh, we never um, delete any of those comments. I know loads of other communities do. and We never police it. And I think that's one of the reasons now why our customers trust us more. Because they're not expecting us to be perfect, I don't think. And I always used to think that they should. And that we should be, but we're, we're human beings. Every company's based full of human beings and human beings fuck up stuff. You know, they yeah. mess stuff up, don't they? And I've found if you're honest with your, with your mistakes as well as your promise and um, you let them be honest, you make them feel safe about being honest. They tell you first, okay, in your living room. Then when you fix it, everyone sees it in your living room. And I found that to be a really, well, mostly positive thing. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, you're, you're, that's, believe, even though that sounds really Obvious. I, I know it's radical what mm. you're saying. And, and actually, I think you're bang on. Again, there is a great, there's another mantra. Uh, the tightest grip is an open hand. Mm. You know, that is, there's so much truth in that from, from the perspective of business. The tightest grip is an open hand. Love your customer, own your customer. If your customer has a complaint, that's a fantastic opportunity mm. to turn somebody into an advocate. Mm. Because if I, if I feel I'm being listened to, I will then really express my story. Normally it's a misunderstanding. Normally it's something that can be addressed. And also I feel part of the story. Mm. Removing problems as if tucking them under the rug doesn't mean they go away. They just stay there. They rot, they stink. Eventually they rot their way through the fabric of our business. Mm. You know, being open, allowing for those conversations to happen is a fantastic way of communicating. It may not be for everybody. Mm. Um, a lot of companies uh, talk about risk management and they're out there policing the internet mm. and worrying what people Getting lawyers say, on everyone. Law exactly. Yeah. Lawyers. Oh, yeah. lawyers. Yeah. You know, but I, I actually think it's great. Mm. It's great. Uh, less fear. Mm. Remember, what is fear? Fear is the absence of love. Mm. And what is love? Love is the absence of fear. Mm. The more loving you can make your organisation and mm. brand, the more people will want to join you because mm. who wouldn't want to be in a loving place? Sure. Sounds like you're doing exactly the right thing, Rob. Mm. And I've, like you said, I've seen that really change over the last year or two uh, with you know, how um, connected we are with Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all the social media stuff. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that progresses. One thing I've just kind of thought, we're probably more than halfway into the podcast, and I'm sure most people know you, BJ, but we shouldn't assume no, no. that, should no, no, we? No. Rob, one of the beauties yeah. is no one knows me, which is great. <laughs> Incidentally, there's one thing you touched on there, which is worth probably putting in just a nugget way, which is digital media, social media, that people talk about it as if it's some kind of weird, you know, mystical wizardry. 
it, it's it's very important to remember it's a conversation. It's not a monologue. Mm. You know, advertising is a monologue. Mm. You stick it up there, no one can say anything. Mm. PR, arguably, is a bit of a monologue, albeit it's coming from the mouth of a journalist. Mm. Digital media is about having a conversation. So it's important to be open to the conversation that's going to be had. Mm. So what, what you've said is bang mm. on. Well, uh, something I've tried to embrace is allowing my customers to decide on the names of my books and in fact this podcast crowdsourcing yeah yeah it's fantastic yeah in fact uh, if you the audio get abundance by peter diamandis is brilliant audio and he talks that was where i first learned what crowdsourcing meant Uh, but yeah that my book life leverage which has just been published by hachette and this audio program was okay we brainstormed some ideas for names in the in my team in my office where we're sitting but actually, we just went to our community and said, what do you love the most? What do you want it to be called? Because then you know they're going to buy it, don't yeah, you, when absolutely. they've named it, because they own your product. Also, it's really clever, that process of elicitation, you know, eliciting from your customer. It's, e- it's so much easier to, to sell something to someone who believes they've been part of its mm. creation than mm. it is to sell something cold. Mm. And, and again, belief is everything, mm. you know, so, so you're, you're spot on. Mm. Use your customer. Mm. Is effectively what you're saying. Incidentally, you're touching on three other things which are really important. That idea of a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck with this concept of there is not enough. I haven't got enough money. I haven't got enough resources. I haven't got enough. I haven't got enough. I haven't got enough. There is always enough. There is always enough. If we're willing to embrace what we've got and use the, 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 the resources we have to hand. I mean, no one is going to turn down an order book no one's going to turn down an order book, but people might turn down funding. People often say to me, uh, how do you get the financing? I, I want to do something, but how do you, I can't get the financing. The answer is you don't need the financing. You need the customers. If you've got the customers, the financing will come. Remember, it's about people. It's not about money. So there is always enough is the first rule. The second rule is it, somehow there's this illusion that more is better. Well, more is not better. Mm. It's just more. Mm. And once you've got more, there's always more. There's always more, more. More is not better. It's just more. And the third and the most pervasive illusion, and this is the illusion that every entrepreneur penetrates, cuts through, is that that's just the way it is. Those are the rules. That's just the way it is. Well, that is not just the way it is. Mm. We are the authors of our own creation. We are the the writer, the producer, the director. We are the lead actor mm. in our own movie. Mm. And the learning from that is if, if in your world, in your business, in your life, you see beauty, it's your beauty. Mm. And if you see shit, it's your shit. Mm. Own it. Mm. Own the all of it. And recognise that in both the triumph and the disaster, there is the lesson. That's what entrepreneurs do. Sure. Entrepreneurs embrace their failures. Mm. They love their I've never yeah. been to a to a, see an entrepreneur or speak to an entrepreneur that's talked to me about his success. Mm. No one's interested in your success. Mm. What they want to know about is where you've failed mm. because that's where the nuggets are. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And that's where people are real. That's where you judge their character. That's where their humility lies, their ability to get back up. We all love that story, don't we? Not the that's what I'm we want. perfect. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have got to get in and and quick talk about my failure. No, it's true. I'm yeah. a magnificent failure. Yeah. You know, I have failed way more than I've ever succeeded, and mm. and my first and I guess most infamous and most famous failure. It depends on how you judge it. Was mm. the brand of cigarettes that I created called Death, with mm. the universal symbol of poison and disease as the logo, the skull and crossbones, and. And uh, deaths, we also had slow death, death lights. You know, it's important to have choice. <laughs> <Death> and <light. laughs> and, and th- that came out of a very simple idea, which is 
there is a market position open for an honest cigarette. Mm. Cigarettes were offering cowboys and colours and and all kinds of different promises, but no one was offering the truth, Mm. in inverted commas. And and, uh, the truth is, if you smoke, too bad you're going to die. And smokers know that. You know, Mm. I'm a smoker. I love fags. Mm. I love... I love a fag. They're fantastic. <laughs> the problem is they'll kill you. Mm. Well, given that information, as an adult in a free society where smoking is legal, if you choose to smoke, it's your funeral. So calling a cigarette death, owning that market position of the honest smoke, the honest fag, seemed like an obvious thing for me to do. And mm. this happened after another great failure that, that I'd been involved in. I had, I'd been importing classic sports cars and Harley-Davidson's from the US to the UK and traded that up and when the market collapsed i had eight containers of ferraris up the panama canal the panama Mm. canal closed i lost everything i I ended up with an eight hundred seventy six thousand pound personal overdraft and and did the only thing i could think of doing at the time which was to call my dad and who's a lovely man a generous man and and uh you know i remember the comment dad i've got a real problem and no problem bitch i'm sure we can help you know what's the damage and i said well 876 grand he said there was a silence on the phone and, <laughs> you know, you're on your own, yeah. <laughs> you know, good luck. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you'll learn a valuable lesson. And I did. I learned a very important lesson. If you owe the bank five grand, you're a bad debt. Mm. If you owe the bank 876,000, you're a good customer. Mm. So everything I thought was true wasn't true. And everything I thought wasn't true was true. Everything flipped around. Mm. That gave rise to the advent of death cigarettes. Death cigarettes was a a vertical learning curve in terms of becoming synonymous in the mind of the customer with the truth. Mm. I recognise that there is no singular truth. The truth resides in faith. What Mm -hmm. we believe to be true is true for us. And in fact, a little bit more respect for each other's truth. This world would be a happier, healthier, Mm. less fearful, less dangerous place. The truth resides in faith. So my view was, and incidentally, none of this is new. Branding and marketing. Here's an example. An angel impregnates a virgin who gives birth to the son of God, who grows up to die on a cross to save us from our sins, then rises from the dead to sit at the right hand of God, the father in heaven, and will come again in glory to judge us all. Well, in my opinion, that's a long shot. You know, if if, if that that was a business plan, I wouldn't invest. But I would be wrong because 30% of the world's population would lay down their life and die for that belief. Mm. And that's a fantastic example of brand. Mm. They've got a great logo, the crucifix. They've got retail outlets all over the world. They've got uniform. They've got a book. Mm. You know, if you want someone to believe something, put it in a book, make it hardback, buy it yourself, give it away free. None of this is new. It's about belief. Mm. So in the world of tobacco, I felt there was a unique position I could own, which was the truth. Mm. The truth is smoking kills. Therefore, calling a cigarette death made complete sense. And Mm. I thought this was a brilliant idea. But sadly, the Tobacco industry didn't really embrace this idea. They felt that it was antithetical to their interests. Sure. I learned a really important business lesson. It doesn't matter how much people want your product or love your brand. If your brand isn't on the shelf for sale, they can't buy it, which may sound really obvious, but distribution is is key. Mm. We tried to get our cigarettes on the shelf. The major tobacco companies took them off the shelf. We tried our own vending machines. We called them death traps. We tried everything, <laughs> but we were losing 0.02 pence a packet we were going to, we had about a six month burn before we were out of business. By this stage, there were, we had employees in the UK. We had three factories on the Dutch German border. We were in trouble. And then I heard about a guy from Newcastle upon Tyne who had convinced a local magistrate's court that the seven and a half tons of alcohol he'd brought into the UK 
was for his personal consumption. And as a result, well, he came, is from he, Newcastle. Well, there you go. So. It makes sense. <laughs> and, and, and as a result of it being for his personal consumption, UK tax and duty wasn't payable. Fags are like alcohol. It's all about tax. 86% of the selling price on a packet of fags is tax. So what he did was he drove a van over to Calais, filled it up, brought the wine back for his daughter's wedding. Local magistrate says it's okay. So I started looking at European law. I looked at the tax differentials between member states and I came up with a scheme for price arbitrage, which I put to my board with one simple slide, which basically said, we can offer the consumer a 40% discount on price while we make a 25% net profit margin being paid in advance with no bad debt. Now, my board were interested and they wanted to know how. Mm. And so I explained because I knew that a principle of Roman law that underpins UK and European law is... Que facet per alium facet per se. And what that bit of Latin means is if you appoint somebody to act as your agent, in the eyes of the law, they are you. So in other words, if you say to somebody, go and rob a bank, and that person goes and robs a bank, it's as if you were robbing the bank yourself because they are your agent. You can't get round the law by way of a third party. So I said, what would happen if I set up a company to purchase cigarettes on behalf of UK smokers as their agent in another member state of Europe then as their agent, arrange for the transport of those cigarettes via DHL to their home address in the UK for their personal consumption. Where would the tax be payable? 70 grand later, Senior Tax Council tells me the tax would be payable at the point of purchase for consumption, which I chose to be Luxembourg, because that's where the European Court of Justice is, and I knew that's where we'd end up. So we kicked off this scheme, the Grim Reaper, don't come cheaper. And, and it, <laughs> Within six months, we were DHL's largest customer in Europe. We were flying two aircraft full of cigarettes into Stansted every month. It was fantastic. But of course... You know, I, where I thought this was an entrepreneurial way of opening up Europe on behalf of UK smokers, Her Majesty's Customs and Excise took the view that it was bootlegging. Mm. This led to a judicial review. That led to a High Court case. The High Court referred it to the Court of Appeal. Court of Appeal referred it to the House of Lords. House of Lords referred it on to the European Court of Justice, where I was then up against every member state of Europe, apart from Spain, Portugal and the Commission. And also they were joined by every major tobacco company who were basically fighting about this case because... It's all about tax. So at the heart of all of this, one problem led to another solution, led to another solution. It, it, it's, it's a journey. Mm. Now, when you're building your parachute as you fall, mm. that's one way of doing it. You're bouncing around. You're like in a pinball machine. Mm. Cleverer entrepreneurs than me have a strategic plan mm. and they work that plan through in yeah. terms of a market. I never had that opportunity mm -hmm. because we were being battered too much by the storm. Mm. Incidentally, the storm of our own creating. Mm. So I recognised that the journey we were on was a journey of our own creation. Mm. The problems we faced were the problems we brought up. They were problems that were there, but we were bringing them to life. Mm. Therefore, we were fighting them. Yeah. And that whole David and Goliath road was exactly the road I loved in terms of energy. Mm. So um, that's, that's, if you like, Rob, my entrepreneurial yeah. journey. And wow. that, or at least that's the... Because I then went on to start an advertising agency and uh, took out 3,500 square foot of space in Old Street and, and then pretty soon realised I needed clients. And, and, and the way you get clients is by being an expert and the way you become an expert is by writing a book. And so I wrote a book mm. and I bought 5,000 copies of the book in hardback to send to the CEOs and the marketing directors of the companies I wanted to be my clients. 
And as a result of buying 5,000 copies, the book became an international business bestseller. And I was then invited to lecture about these newfound ideas around branding and marketing. And right. so, so the agency then grew. I then sold the agency. I then set up another business in the world of shoes, selling really expensive shoes that no one needs. Mm. And uh, But they're beautiful Except shoes. Except my fiance. Except <laughs> who, 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 who needs perfect. hundreds of pairs uh, of them. Yeah. And in fact, you'll find many women need hundreds of pairs because oh. there's a language of shoes. There's, mm. a, there's a story of shoes. It's all about desire. Mm. And I was talented enough to work with George Gina Goodman on those, and she's an amazing designer. That journey was another journey. We took on board £4.5 million worth of investment for 10% of the equity. Hurrah, happy day, suddenly we're minted, £45 million company, only to discover that the investors, who were a VCT company, had a different view. They wanted to take our brand and make cheap shoes out of China. This led to a problem. The only way they could see their way out of the problem was by owning the brand. The only way they could own the brand was by forcing the company into administration. They forced that business into administration to try and set up with that brand elsewhere, mm. only to discover that they couldn't. So we, in fact, two years ago, bought the brand back for a pound. Oh, right. And now we're doing Georgina Goodman. In fact, I recommend everybody go to www.georginagoodman.com and look at the beautiful slippers that are on there. If you're um, listening, my fiance, <laughs> you don't want to go. Actually, no, she'll like it. <laughs> yeah, she'll like thanks. it. I'm, I'm not but, doing another interview no, with you. You cost me a load no, of money. She will like it. Because, <laughs> I'm sure she will. Because they're actually not ridiculously expensive. Yeah. These ones are really good value. Um, what they are is handmade products out of Portugal. Here you go. This is another example of, of twisting the brand story. There is another business model, particularly now with the advent of the web, that's being employed increasingly by entrepreneurs. And that policy is a scorched earth policy. The idea being leave no margin behind. Cut back all the margin you can to an operational margin, which is at its absolute minimum. Reason being no one can then copy it. Mm. So the shoes we're doing now, handmade, out of Portugal, all leather, beautiful designer shoes, are in the affordable bracket of 120 Mm. quid a pair as opposed to 750 quid a pair. Yeah. Because competitors see a margin and they want to come and disrupt your industry. Exactly. The minute they see that margin, they think they can. But Mm. when there is no margin, they can't, which Mm. means you're left with taking a volume position in the market. Mm. And that's the difference between niche and volume. So the business that we're looking at now with these shoes is democratised fashion. You know, Mm. the opportunity of allowing style to go to everybody. Sure. I could sit here all day and talk to you, BJ. This is a lot of fun. You've got a car booked, uh, so we haven't got too much time left. There are two questions I'd like to ask you, and uh, Tom, we should make a note of this, because I want to ask this to every one of my guests. And I'm just going to say both of them first so I remember them, and then you can answer them one at a time. So one of them is going to be, what advice would you give yourself meeting the 20 years younger self? So how old are you now, BJ? Do you mind? I'm 50. 50, No, hang on. I'm 51. Okay, so what what advice would you give to your 30-year-old self is going to be question one. And then question two, I'm interested for your feedback and for all the listeners, what does being a disruptive entrepreneur mean to you? So answer in any order. Okay, if I went back and gave myself advice 30 years ago, the advice would be, it's okay, you are good enough. Um, Because I realised at that time, that feeling of not being good enough manifested in me Mm. as a as arrogance. Mm. I came across thinking I knew, pretending I thought I knew everything. Mm. The point is, I don't and I won't. And there are people who are... And that's okay not to. And it's okay. Mm. It's okay. Mm. You know, you are okay. (laughs) And it will be okay. That, that, that's the advice I'd give myself. Sure, because I think most people I've met who are not in their 20s anymore, 
a bit linked to what you say, BJ, uh, they stop worrying so much about what people think about them. Because I think what you've said about I'm not good enough and etc. is often linked to, I'm not saying it is for you, but it's often linked to what we think other people think about us. No, it's exactly it. It's completely pertinent to me. And what you've said is completely true, Rob. I mean, Mm. all of us are a mess Mm. and all of us (laughs) have got massive problems and all of us are seeking to hide those problems Mm. and pretend. And what I say to myself back then, which is what I've learned, is stop pretending. Mm. It's okay. Be who you really are Mm. and move forward with that sense of openness, that sense of love. And also I'd say this. Listen to your women. You know, they know. <laughs> yeah, they know. They you know. Um, yeah. And actually, here's a message for any woman looking back at her 30 year old self forgive your men. You know? <laughs> yeah. anyway. We should change the name of this yeah, to the relationship entrepreneur. The relationship counselor. Yeah. yeah. Great answer. And then, what does being a disruptive entrepreneur mean to you, BJ? I think every entrepreneur is effectively disruptive because a disrupt, disruption means seeing a gap in the market and and then taking advantage of it, um, mm. using an alternate way, removing a link that's otherwise there. Disruption, yeah. to me, is about is about finding another approach. Uh, it's about looking at looking for the problem mm. in the market and embracing the problem. That sure. is an, a disruptive entrepreneur is somebody mm. who sees the problem and embraces the problem mm. with a new way. Sure. BJ, it's been a pleasure. Is there any way anyone can find you if they're interested in following you? I don't know if you're on social media or if they could see you speak somewhere or something. Oh, God, Rob. This I'm, is the plug I'm, bit. This no, is... I know. I'm rubbish at all of that. Um, I, I have a Twitter account, but, but I've never tweeted, albeit I think I've got about 750 <laughs> followers. So I like the idea of them all waiting, you know, yeah. for something yeah. to say. But, um, and also, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. So if you want to link in with me, that would be a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on email, right? Um, and uh, uh, I'm available for speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you sure. do, you have like an email address if someone wants to maybe hire yes. you as a speaker. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Bj at bjcunningham.com. It'd be mm. a pleasure to hear from you. And um, yeah, be, yeah, that's the way. And, and it, hopefully with you again, Rob. Well, that'd look, be the answer. This, is this a third time now? You've it is. Yeah, the third time. So that, that's got to be an endorsement. <laughs> that's an endorsement. Uh, it's the same talk three times. <laughs> and you're much. still listening. Exactly. So uh, obviously, I wouldn't have even invited BJ to speak on the disruptive entrepreneur if I didn't think it was amazing. So I just want to say a massive thank you, BJ, for donating your time and giving us some great insights and great stories, and you know, giving your passion. Uh, so make sure you're following me on Facebook and Instagram if you're Where not. Where do I find this? Uh, if you go, you use iTunes, do you? Yeah. Yeah. So if you just go on to the podcast bit and type in Disruptive Entrepreneur. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Then you can find that. Yeah. So, um, and, and, and hey, look, remember to go and post on my social media page. If there's anyone you'd love me to interview, I've got Gerald Ratner next week. If you're a UK listener, you'll know him. Everyone in the UK knows He's him. He's absolutely brilliant. Loves him. Hundreds of million pounds worth of business and net worth. One word came out of his mouth, the media killed him, uh, and then he rose again, and he's going to be a keynote speaker at one of our events next week. So that's I'm really excited about that. But if, you've, if there's one on you'd love me to interview, uh, just put a suggestion on my Facebook page. Thank you very much, and thanks, BJ. Great pleasure, Rob. Thank you.